want to thank our sponsor, Planet Forward. Planet Forward has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Forward in spring or online at planetforward.com. the crime scene today where we discuss current and future issues in law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigation. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. Today's show is graphic in nature, discussing details of violent acts such as murder and may not be appropriate for all audience. Listen, discretion is advised. So, uh, Paul, thanks for coming back. Absolutely. Uh, co-host today. Uh, it's great to be back in the studio. We're broadcast from downtown Conroe, Texas on Lone Star Community Radio. Uh, shows available on all major podcast locations. And last check, I think we're being listened to in 15 different countries. So, uh, to all our listeners, uh, welcome. So uh, today we're uh, we've done this before. We've covered a, a case, but uh, this particular case that we're going to go through, uh, sort of a, a true crime story. But the difference between us covering a case and most of the true crime podcasts, radio shows that you listen to, is that both. Paul and myself were actually detectives working the case mm-hmm. and on the case. Uh, we have a team involved in doing that, but uh, in doing so, and and obviously our careers have, have moved on, and this is back at a time that we were both detectives <laughs> and not having to uh, supervise anybody and, and do all those things. But uh, So let's talk about uh, Jerry Denslow. So uh, a little bit about uh, Jerry Denslow. Uh, he was a 50-year-old male that uh, was living alone, and he uh, was an alcoholic. He had a problem with this, and and he recognized this problem. He yes. actually was uh, going to be moving back in with his family. He was living by himself and had his house on the market, uh, and actually uh, what uh, we'll talk about in a second as far as how the house was and those <clears throat> conditions that uh, it was in. But he had decided to move back. Uh, with his family, and the neighborhood uh, that he was living in. Uh, many of y'all uh, that are listening are not familiar with where we are. We're located in Conroe, Texas, and in Conroe and in Montgomery County, there is uh, Lake Conroe. It's a man-made lake and a pretty decent-sized lake, and there are communities uh, built around that lake for people to enjoy all the things that come with, with lake living, and that was uh, similar to this neighborhood. It was uh, average subdivision lots, and I think the house was what something about like two thousand square foot, give or take. Yeah, it wasn't, it like, wasn't big. It wasn't small. Pretty average size. So I mean, a, a, what anyone consider a, a typical uh, subdivision. But at the end of this subdivision, or I guess on the back side of the subdivision, was access to the lake. Yes. So there's a marina back there, so people that live in this community could go back and and launch their boats and and enjoy that. So uh, that's sort of the idea in this um, community. Yeah, sits a little bit out from the the city, so it's it's a suburb, I would say, uh, of Conroe. Uh, it's sort of away from the downtown Conroe area, uh, but probably about more of 40 minutes from the city of Houston. Um, so, to give you an idea, uh, Houston, Texas, uh, being about 40 minutes away, and and Conroe being to the north, uh, so that's where where this is. So. Uh, the way we come about this is that, again, as I said, he was selling a house. Mm-hmm. So uh, his realtor uh, had been trying to get in touch with him and was having a difficult time getting in touch, so came by uh, to check on him. And uh, whenever he came by, obviously had a key to the house, uh, found 
uh, Jerry Denslow deceased in one of the bedrooms. Obviously, we get called uh, to the scene. So, you know, Paul, sort of describe, I guess, the, the scene as far as the, the house in general, the, I guess, the lack of things. So, yeah, the, ho- the house was very clear. He was uh, fixing to move out. He's moving out of state. Um, considering it's a single man living there, I, I would have considered a very, very clean house. Uh, you know, I'm not a necessarily a messy person, but I would not have had it as big as this. So you could tell it's clear he's prepping it for, for sale. Um, there was minimal furniture in there. You had rooms that had just a desk. You had rooms that had absolutely nothing in it. You had his bedroom, which had his bed and a nightstand and a dresser. So it was minimalistic. And most of his stuff had already been packed up and he was either in storage or had been sent on to the state that he was moving to. Now, I know that, I mean, like when we first come into a house, I mean, we're automatically looking for what happened, right? And, absolutely. And so when we look at this house, I mean, besides the fact that it's sort of empty is there's no forced entry. I mean, the, the realtor didn't find any broken windows, broken door. I mean, there's nothing to right. indicate that someone forced their way into this house. And, the, and looking through, as you said, there's, there's no furniture in these rooms. Um, from what I remember in the kitchen, there was, uh, still, uh, uh, it wasn't cooking, but there was things left on the stove. Like, like, like they, they just had dinner. Yeah. Right, some, had some, dinner the night before some there's gravy some, and stuff, some beer there and, mm-hmm. and that type of thing. But it, there's no disturbance. There aren't things knocked over. I mean, not there may things to knock over, but, but even the things that were there, like in the living room, he had a couch and a recliner, a uh, little table next to the recliner. His glasses were neatly laid on the table. The, the, Cigarettes were neatly laid on the table, the laptops. I mean, there was things sitting there as if somebody had just finished their evening and went to bed. Right, and that's, and that's where he's found. He's found in bed. He's found in the bed. Uh, and uh, one thing that, that um, about the scene, he'd been there for a while. Yes. Okay. I, I remember walking in, there were uh, numerous amounts of flies. <laughs> um, matter of fact, it was one of those where you sort of could see the ceiling moving. Right. And multiple uh, generations of flies. You had dead flies. You had live flies. So, so it, it, it was an extended time. And, and I do remember, uh, I, I'll just blame an on patrol officer. It may have been a detective. <laughs> but uh, someone turned on the ceiling fan. I do know that. And flies scattered everywhere. <laughs> so we, we took care of that. Um, but he was covered up. So one thing that we're taught in our classes uh, when we find a victim that is covered, it usually indicates, not always, but it usually indicates that the person did not want to see them afterwards, that right. there's some type of relationship between the two, that it's it's not a random thing. So, you know, There's some connection usually when someone is, is covered up or trying to conceal a part of the body. Right. right? Uh, and that was kind of our trigger. That's what made us really become suspicious of the scene. Uh, we knew this guy was he was 50 years old. He was a chronic alcoholic. We knew there was a potential for health problems. So we at first didn't know going in if we had a, a just a natural death or circ- suspicious circumstances. Right. So uh, in looking at the body, and this is not always an easy thing to do uh, when someone has reached a, a level of, of decomposition. Mm-hmm. Right After many days go by, uh, the body goes through many changes, and, and by this, sometimes it is harder to identify injuries, oh, right? So uh, it, it took a little bit of time. We're able to actually find that he does have a bullet hole. Mm-hmm. And so at, at that point, obviously, he's, he's going to autopsy. We're going to find out further as far as his type of injuries. We didn't see a car on the scene. No. And uh, I know neighbor said he owned a car. 
So Correct. We do, and again, we, we can't make the assumption that the car's stolen. I mean, it there's he's drunk. He could have gone to a bar. He could have got a ride home. There's could have no left telling. in a ditch somewhere. Nobody but, knew. Uh, but we don't have a car. The car's missing. Uh, he's been there for I want to say what, about seven days. And and obviously, as far as uh, throwing a, a time frame out there, I know that's uh, one thing that. <laughs> Um, the TV is great for as far as your crime shows or whatever, but there, there's not a he died at 7:05 right. p.m. 7:05 plus or minus you know. 12 to 24 hours is right. more we, easy to do. We go by the changes in the body and and what's happening as to the body always goes through the same uh, process right. in decomposition and what process they're in can give us somewhat of a determination, meaning obviously if he's in that type of condition, this didn't happen two hours ago, right. but uh, we're not narrowing it down uh, to a specific well, And the time. listeners have to remember, this was in July in southeast Texas, and the, in, the, the temperature inside the residence was 85 degrees when we walked yeah, in hot. there. It's so hot. it's going to advance the decomposition a little bit too. Yeah, so the, uh, so the next thing is... Uh, the autopsy but prior to the autopsy some things that were going on so again we were trying to find uh, who's responsible right who what the motive is for this and i remember uh, one of the first things that we had uh normally when we're dealing with these type of things it's usually a relationship someone who's close to them right right? so so okay who's he dating who was he dating you know that type of thing and i remember one of the things that that stuck out was so we're looking through the house and we find in and this is you know, this is in the 2000s, right? The internet exists, right? But, w- but we found a video dating thing, <laughs> like like you record your own video for this dating service type stuff. Um, so at, at this point, I mean, this opens more avenues. I mean, did did someone come in here under the video dating thing, right. under a ruse, and and kill him for money or car or whatever? Um, luckily, we we didn't have to venture down that road too far. We we do have an ex. Uh, that ex lived in Alvin. Now, Alvin, Texas is uh, a good hour drive away from where we were. Yeah. And so, and, and an idea as far as how these things work, we, you know, you, you see on TV, you see a lead detective, you see a, a backup detective, but I mean, there's a team behind this, right? I right. Mean, oh, absolutely. So, uh, there are many people involved in this investigation. And so I remember as far as, uh, I was with, uh, Keith Eccles, uh, mm-hmm. we were handling sort of the run the errands, right? And I know that you and uh, Kim Bivens were handling the scene and, and the interviews and stuff. So, so Keith and my job was to go and find his ex, right? And what we did find um, that we wanted to talk to her about was that uh, Denslow had a protective order mm-hmm. that he had already violated previously. Okay, so obviously uh, their relationship was not good. Uh, it had ended in in a way that she again, had a protective order that uh, he wasn't listening to. So we're heading down to talk to her. Uh, by this time, we've we've been up all day. We've had uh, the evening and stuff. So we head down there trying to locate her. She wasn't at her house. She went here. We're working with Alvin PD, trying to find her to get some type of lead while uh, you and Ken are still working the scene. And I remember... Uh, we, we couldn't find her. We just left a message. It's like, hey, if, you know, Alvin PD was going to keep checking back, keep checking back. Whenever she would come home, we, we would uh, uh, get in touch with her. And so I, I remember uh, driving home, and by this time it, it's daytime. I mean, it's probably like, you know, uh, maybe 8 in the morning, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, 
had no rest. I know uh, I fell asleep probably about a half mile from the house. I enter like the oncoming lane. I'm, I'm just focused. I got to get home and at least get some rest, right? Um, and as soon as I get home, I get a call from Alvin PD. Say, hey, we found her. It's like, no, I, 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 Not I, right need, now. <laughs> I, I need about, I need about an hour. Right. So I called, uh, uh, you and Ken, and I know that, uh, y'all headed out. We, we went down there and picked her up at that point. Cause we still had, uh, I guess a little bit of time. We had about maybe two hours till the autopsy. Right. So Keith and I were going to head to the autopsy. Uh, y'all were heading down there. So y'all found something out in Alvin about, I guess a guy of interest to her. It was it was somebody that was interested in having a dating relationship with her, and, and they I think they came to an understanding that it wasn't going to be that type of relationship uh, because of his sex offender registry. But they they were they were friends. They were. But she had confided in him. Yes. About whatever this protective order thing Correct. was. So and about some physical violence that had occurred. So with that, he came on the map, mm-hmm. right? And he lived. Um, not far. He lived like Magnolia area. Right. Which, so that was, that's like maybe a 15, 20 minute drive. From, if you from take 1097 straight through, you can get there in 20 minutes easy. Right. So, so he comes on the radar as, as a possible suspect because of defending her being, you know, wanting to date well, her. He had these. made the statement to her that if he, if he hurts you, uh, me having been in prison, I, I know people who can get things done. Which, of course, is going to be a huge red flag to us. Right, right. So we'd like to talk to that person. <laughs> so, um, More of a herring. So we have the autopsy. The autopsy's coming up, uh, and I've had a little bit of rest, and, and, and uh, Keith's had a little bit of rest. So we're heading that way. And our CSI at that time was uh, Darla King. She's going to meet us there, and she plays a factor in a second. So, mm-hmm. so Keith, as we're heading there, uh, he made the comment, and you you mentioned it, it's July, it's hot, we've been to decomp after decomp after decomp. So I think Keith and I had gone to like eight within within the past week or right. so, and and they don't they don't smell great. So uh, <laughs> it's a mild. And so, so Keith is basically saying, look, I you know we got to find some solution to this, right? So I told him we're we're heading to the autopsy. I said, look, I said I've been really thinking about this, and I have an idea. I said, let's go by one of the, the home building stores, you know, I can't remember Home Depot, Lowe's, wherever we, we stopped by. I said, let's get a painter's mask. This one with the charcoal that fits in mm-hmm. and everything. And I said, we'll see if it works. I already looked at it. I said, they're 40 bucks. I said, and if, I said, if they don't work, I said, they got a great return policy. We'll take it back after the autopsy, right? I bet they'd so, love that. <laughs> so, so, so we had, we had the autopsy with them. And of course we get a hard time when we, when we walk in, right? Cause normally we don't have these masks on. You're just sucking it up That's and right. whatever happens. Right. So, but the reason I knew they worked is that during the autopsy, they make the Y incision. Obviously, gases expel and those things. And and um, and Keith and I were fine. Didn't uh, we couldn't smell anything? It was, it was we were able to work and without an issue. But I saw Darla sort of like I won't say go limp, but you could see that she definitely moved when when that gases was released. So so and looking at her, I like yeah, these are working fine. And I think within the next week or two, all the CSIs had gone to Lowe's or Home Depot, and they they all had masks at that point. But so uh, tell us what we found uh, at the autopsy. So I mean, obviously they they knew for a fact it was a bullet wound by the point by the time they get there, they had straight through and through. But if you're talking about inside the pillow. Right. Well, yeah. as far as the so we got we got bullets recovered 
uh, or it went through and through. So we right, have a perforating wound, and it went through uh, eye and skull. Correct. Right? The injury was through the what looked appeared to be a closed eye, and uh, we had a stellate pattern, which meant it was a hard contact wound. Uh, but your exit was at an angle to the uh, right rear. So now on the scene, uh, we. Uh, he was laying in bed. Mm-hmm. There's indication that probably sleeping at the time. Right. And uh, we did uh, get the pillow, mm-hmm. and from the pillow we recovered a, project- a fired projectile. Okay. So out- a beautiful projectile too. So out of that, uh, you know, something called you know Nibin and mm-hmm. uh, able to determine not only uh, what gun it possibly goes to, but also. Uh, you know what many people have heard of matching the bullet to which particular gun fired but in this case we didn't have the gun so uh, we were <clears throat> looking at it and so they at least could come back and say this is the type of weapon mm-hmm. and these are the brand there was a list of eight manufacturers that this gun could possibly belong to and no more right which, great I mean that's great narrowing so it at least possibly puts us on the right track later if we're trying to mm-hmm. to, to find those things right um, so that sort of leads to a, a break in the case, sort of. Okay, so it, it just more throws red flags up, but a break in the case. So right after we figure out that that this belongs to one of these manufacturers, right. uh, we get a call from a neighbor, mm-hmm. okay, who says he's missing a gun, and he lives. I don't know. It's like three or four houses down, but he's, he was he was on the street, three right? Down. So he, he's down the street from from where this happens. And he's missing a gun that matches a manufacturer and caliber we're looking for. <laughs> and exactly. he only, and so uh, now we would like to talk to him. Um, and uh, what he explains, I guess there was a death in the family. He had a gathering. So we go over. I know that uh, we had taken uh, pictures of mm-hmm. of the garage that it was in. There was like a drawer it was in There's or a, something. There were so, drawers in, and, and our CSIs actually took the drawer. Right. So. T- uh, tell me about the the gathering that was going on. So the the original gathering, the uh, the caller is what we call him, had lost his father just like shortly before this, uh, within a week, and they were having the wake there at the house. And during the course of that, um, you know, he kept that pistol in the drawer with an extra magazine, ammo, and his wallet. And what led to his discovery of that pistol being missing is he had gone down the street to the liquor store. Uh, trying to buy some alcohol. When he got there, he, or some beer rather, to continue the, the uh, gathering, he got there and realized he didn't have his wallet. So he gets back to the house and finds that, uh, you know, he opens the drawer where he normally keeps it and finds that the pistol's missing. Uh, he didn't report it at the time for whatever reason. Um, he, he assumed, his assumption was that his dad had moved the pistol without telling him and now dad passed away. He's not right. going to be able to find the pistol. Now, uh, he had other people over mm-hmm. at, at this gathering, right? Is this, Correct. It's, he had some, some neighbors uh, had come over to kind of mourn with him. Right. So, I mean, th- was this like an actual like, wake, like the funeral had happened, they, they had this going on, or was this? This was, this was not an actual, this was not the funeral home type wake. This was just a family gathering uh, in the interim before they had all the official ceremonies and stuff. This was family only, and, of course, like I say, a couple of neighbors came over. Okay. So I know that um, uh, one person uh, came of interest out of that uh, that was was a relative. I guess they had come mm-hmm. down. It's a and, uh, cousin. A cousin. So so he, he's, 
he's brought up, mm-hmm. and um, and we're certainly going to talk to him in a little bit. Uh, but then, as, as we're still sorting through this case, okay, some more time goes by. We're trying to get fingerprints off the drawer uh, and all this. We get uh, another break in the case, mm-hmm. right? The same neighbor calls and says, hey, I found the victim's truck. <laughs> oh, by the way, which, but, interesting enough, you know, the, literally 40 minutes before he called about the truck, uh, Darla King and I, the CSI, had been in the DPS helicopter flying over that neighborhood looking for this truck, taking aerial of the scene, and that truck wasn't anywhere to be found. Right, so, so it wasn't there. It wasn't there. And, and then, then the amount of time it took us to land in Conroe, and drive 15 minutes back, the truck appeared. Yeah, he, he had found it. Yes. Right? So, a little suspicious. Uh, so now we have him missing a gun that matches the type used in the murder, mm-hmm. and he's found the truck that was that, missing from the scene. Is missing, and y'all did not locate with a helicopter <laughs> right. over the area, right? So, need to say, he's cranking up pretty high on the suspect list, uh, which is not where he wanted to be. No. Um, but, so, um, the truck was found uh, at, the, at it's not a marina, it was like a timeshare. So, it's a, it's, a ser- it's, it's a large parking lot that is shared by apartments and some rent, uh, vacation townhomes, and it, which adjacent to its own docks and marina. So, yeah, it, it's a vacation area that people just randomly stay in right but it actually led to some other problems because it being a timeshare most timeshares are like mm-hmm. from a saturday to saturday right or saturday friday whatever right right so if someone's there and that truck was not there yesterday and it's there today or, or whatever the case may be uh the people that were staying there last week are no longer there it's not the same people you talk to today right they, they, they've moved on so it's not like we can go door to door and try to interview these people and go hey how long has the truck been here or right anything like that right um but we did and i i remember I, I can't remember if it was maintenance or a cleaning person at the at the facility it was the maintenance person for the the townhomes so we talked to them and what they were sure about though is that the truck that was sitting there had not been parked there uh at that location earlier that week right and like okay well how how are you sure i mean because it's, it's literally just parking spaces right i mean how you know it's this one not that one anybody said well that's where i always park right so i've been parking mm-hmm. in that spot until you know this truck shows up so it gave us indication that this truck had been moving it, it's been coming and going and, right. and whether it's been coming from this place i mean we knew that it was here now but whether it had you know been here before and that led to uh, I want to say uh, an elderly lady there, mm-hmm. and she was able to at least tell us she didn't know what park space, but knew it had been there earlier in the week. So right. at, at this point, we at least know this truck has been coming and going uh, from this facility. Um, so again, at this point, we just have very, very suspicious neighbor who has a lot of clues in our case. Um, but we find in the truck, um, in processing it, uh, we find a map, um, and that map is to a hotel. Yes. Uh, really had no link to any of that. We didn't, I mean, that easily could have been the Denslow's, right? That, Absolutely. That, that I mean, there was other paperwork out. in that truck that... Um, uh, there was a date on it, 
that would have been very close to mm -hmm. the time that he would have died. Again, we don't have that exact time, but it, you know, so it, it still raised suspicion, but it, it wasn't uh, anything really explained so much uh, at that point. Um, but I would say the, the real break that happens is when the stepfather calls. Yeah. Now, um, the stepfather, and we speak of the stepfather of Brian Winnebauer. Correct. Okay. So uh, he had called patrol, actually, mm -hmm. right? So um, he basically is calling in and says that he believes his son has something to do with this, um, that his son has been very interested in this case. And, and understand that, that they live on the same street also, uh, they're, right? They're the fourth fourth house down. So where our guy that's missing gun is third house down, this person is fourth or, fourth or fifth. So he, he lives like next door. Yes. Very, very close to where the gun's very missing. Close. And certainly very close to the crime scene. But the stepdad calls because his son has been very interested in the case, I think was taken to the library, mm -hmm. right? So he sits at the library all day researching the case and makes some comment to him that the detectives don't don't have any clue what they're doing, right? right? Or, or don't, they don't know anything they, about it. They're stupid. They don't have any clue what they're doing in this investigation. They're asking for everyone's help. Right. So, and, and we all course, know that we, we put everything in the media that yes. we can on every <laughs> aspect of the case. But uh, either way, so he, he believes that, uh, you know, that there's, there's no leads on this or whatever. So, but he's very infatuated with trying to find out about this he's, case. He's printing out these articles and he's following the case, I mean, to a T. So, uh, the stepdad informs us that his son is out on parole. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's been to prison before, uh, for burglarizing a house mm -hmm. and he's scared of his son. At the time he calls patrol, he is sitting in a closet. He has got a gun, uh, and his son is, is not being belligerent. It's nothing like he's afraid because his son's doing something in the next room. It's just because of uh, his past history and because of his infatuation with the case, mm -hmm. he is scared uh, for himself. Now, uh, I will say, you know, out of this case, one um, great thing that happened, and just I, I can't brag enough about uh, the patrol division on this, is they had enough wits to not go to the house and ask him to meet them somewhere. Uh, right. So he met them uh, close by. It was like a dead-end road. So, or yeah, there's a, a, there's a dead end with a uh, – it's, it's kind of a loop road that dead ends at the lake with docks and everything. And that's They actually had uh, Detective Bivis and I meet them out there with him. Right. So so what further did he have to say on that one? So he, he was scared. And he said the one thing that really scared him the most is not only was his son following this case and, and just so intent on it, what scared him the most about it is – after they talked about it for a minute, or for a day rather, his son started following from room to room every time he'd get on the phone. He started acting as if he was a part of this case or acting as if he was a problem. So, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he had been to prison before mm -hmm. uh, for burglary, for having a gun, mm -hmm. for entering houses. So, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not like he went to prison for... Uh, for drugs or, or something, DWI, uh, you right. know, uh, unrelated that doesn't sort of match this. This is sort of matching mm -hmm. uh, what's happening. So the the next thing that was going to happen on it was to start doing interviews, and it was uh, very typical. I mean, we interview anybody associated with the case. We've already certainly been interviewing the person who found the truck right. and the one who uh, uh, is missing the gun. 
so next is bringing in uh, the stepdad. Mm-hmm. We're bringing in the you said cousin the cousin, the cousin from the family thing, mm-hmm. and we're bringing in Brian. Okay, um, so while y'all are doing interviews of all these people. Uh, I can't remember if I was, I think I was still with Keith at that point. We're heading out with his parole officer because we know that if he's in a house with guns, which obviously he was because his father has a gun in the closet that he's protecting himself with, and he's not supposed to have alcohol. So uh, the parole, uh, his parole officer is meeting us at the house to do, uh, you know, just inspection of, uh, is there a, is there a violation of, of this, right? Um, we certainly find um, uh, he's got alcohol in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. There's alcohol in the fridge. There's um, things like that that he, he's not supposed to have. So he, he's certainly in violation and, and possibly under, I don't know, normal circumstances. It would not get you a blue warrant and sent right. back to, to prison, but it certainly was enough that uh, we had something that we, we could talk about, right? Absolutely. So um, tell me about talking to the cousin. So that was an interesting one. You know, this you got to keep in mind, in 2008, in July of 2008 especially, our unit, the Major Crimes Unit, had only been formed for about three months. I mean, right. all of us had worked murders before, but it was randomly for, for most of us in that unit. So we were trying to get all of our experience and all of our training put to good use uh, to prove that this unit was effective. So one of the classes that we had the, the opportunity to attend, of course, was all of our interview and interrogation schools. And in interviewing this cousin, one of the things that I found is some of the stuff we've been taught was dead on. And that was that as we put pressure on it, because he looked like a good suspect in this case. I mean, he, he'd had all the right marks. So we transitioned somewhat from an interview to an interrogation and started leaning on him. And his reactions, without giving too many of the, uh, the secrets away, his reactions were 100% on board for an innocent person or someone that did not commit the offense. His reactions were exactly what you'd expect from a truthful person. All right. So, um, and I know that interview lasted for a little while. It's not like gay poof. Great, uh, you know. Probably two hours at least. So, uh, and I've been there too. I mean, you've, after doing it for a while, you, mm-hmm. you just can tell. I mean, Absolutely. you you know by indications it's like this person has nothing to do with this, you know. And and so that's that's what you were getting out of this guy. Um, so next up comes Brian, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Brian's our next interview, and we start uh, we start finding out some things from him. Uh, in the interview process, and and again, so we're talking about the the training and things for interview interrogation. It is a two part process. There is an interview part, yes, where uh, we're actually trying to just let somebody tell their story and get the information and and get the details. And it's during that time that we do get some information um, about him and a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that stands out is he makes a comment about uh, going out with his girlfriend uh, recently, and I can't remember if it was her birthday, his birthday. There was some some, some cele- special occasion. Some celebration thing they were doing. And so then he mentions that they went to the Courtyard Marriott in the Woodlands. Yes. Which is the address on the map. On that map. Okay. So, and I remember immediately calling uh, Mark Wright, which is our crime scene investigator who had been working and fingerprinting that drawer. He said, quit fingerprinting the drawer. <laughs> Drop what you're you know, doing and get on that map. Get on the map and see what you can find on the map, 
right? So y'all are still in the interview. At this point, um, I think we believe there's po- we're, we're looking for video, right? We want video. Right. Uh, at that point, uh, Billy Ballard uh, was uh, our uh, forensic uh, specialist for videos and computers things. So uh, Billy and I were headed to um, headed down and uh, to look at the at the hotel. If I remember, Billy went with me. Uh, Keith may have been involved too, but we head down uh, to go check out the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. And at this point, obviously, we, we have the truck. We have a picture of the truck. And so we go to the hotel. And I'm sure they have many people come and go, right? So it's like, okay, what's our chance? It's a know, shot in the dark. You know, that you remember this person unless, unless they stayed here, right? If we have a name. So we go there and we ask, you know, did you have this person here? Which, again, they also have many people come and go. And, we, and they said yes. Um, they did come by. And I remember them specifically. And the reason why is because uh, he had come in and they said he sort of made a stink about things. Because when he had made reservations, obviously it was not for this hotel. Right. Okay. So he thinks he has a hotel reserved for him and his girlfriend. And they say, no, we don't. Uh, but let me call around other hotels. So they start calling the ones that are around and that maybe, because, I mean, literally there's Courtyard Marriott and then right next to it is Marriott something else, right? right? So, I mean, it's very possible you just are at the wrong location. So they call around, and at the end of it, he, they couldn't find any place that he had registered in. Now, who knows, maybe he was lying to his girlfriend really <laughs> didn't have a hotel. But uh, the only hotel that they had left or the only room they had left was like their most expensive suite or something right so it was $300 a night and certainly not in a category he wanted to pay for right but um, and the other thing that stood out uh, was that a headlight was out on the truck Mm -hmm. which helped in finding the video right because when you're looking at nighttime video it's not always that clear but if you have one headlight out it makes it a lot easier to to, to find the vehicles vehicles. okay Another thing that he mentioned during the interview was that while they were at the hotel, that uh, he went to Target mm-hmm. with her to buy a Tostino's pizza. Because, I mean, if your girlfriend's right. coming to town and you got to take her out and really her wine and diner, you take her for a Tostino's <laughs> pizza from Target, right? So, um, now for those unfamiliar with Target's uh, loss prevention system, Ooh. okay? Uh, it is intense. Uh, do not steal anything from Target. They they have a very good system there. Um, so I went to Target. I said, hey, I'm looking for someone who bought a Tostino pizza on this particular day, mm-hmm. right? All they had to do was take a barcode of the Tostino pizza and said, yep, we only sold one on that day, okay? Um by them knowing they sold that one, they were able to give me the date and time of the cashier, which has video at the cashier. So we have Brian on video with his girlfriend at the cashier buying the Tostino's pizza. And then I said, well, do uh, you have video in the parking lot? And they said, well, we've been doing construction. We only one camera's working. Um, all the other cameras are not working. I said, okay, so the only camera they had only focused on one particular mm-hmm. parking spot. All the other park spots you couldn't see. Um, he parked in that one 
parking spot. And that just doesn't happen in murder cases. So so we have him driving the truck, <laughs> parking in the only spot that can be recorded uh, on, on the video. So at this point, we have him in the deceased truck. Mm-hmm. That still doesn't get murder. Okay, no. uh, it, you know we have him in the truck. Doesn't mean he didn't have permission to take that truck before the guy was killed. So we still got to get around to to the killing, right? So we certainly have him using the truck. Uh, we have him with his girlfriend at the map in the truck. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about the interview of uh, talking with him. So he was an interesting interview because he, he came in under the guise of, hey, we're just interviewing everybody that's in the area, anybody that has had any contact with Jerry. Um, we understand that you might be able to help us out. We're stumped. And I, and I decided during that interview to play along to that. I mean, you know, look, we're stumped. We don't know what to do. Help us out. So he, he at first was very helpful. And this is when he started giving us all these information and things like that. Um, if I remember correctly during the interview, he, he admitted clearly, obviously, that he was at the hotel and he had gone to Target, but he said he was in his girlfriend's vehicle, even right, though she had flown down from Dallas. Right. Um, so her parents lived close by. Yes, and used, parents lived close by, and they used that there. vehicle, which we knew obviously wasn't true. So that, that led me to believe that we probably had our, our right person. Um, as we went a little further into it and the more lies he told, we tried to transition from that interview to the interrogation stage. And it was almost instantaneous. As soon as we put pressure on him, he exhibited all of the physical attributes of someone who's being untruthful and trying to be untruthful. I mean, he crossed his arms. He actually had his arms pressed so tightly into him that he was, he was cutting off his own breath. He backed himself up against the wall. Um, just, it was quite clear that he wasn't being truthful. But of course, you know, the, their thing is, as far as um, excuses, and, and finally, I mean, we, we do get to a point mm-hmm. that they saying, okay, uh, yes, this happened, right? He, he confesses. He says that this happened. Yes, I, yes, I shot him. Uh, but now we get to his reason <laughs> on, on, on why, right? Um, first off, and, and this, um, as we reflect back to uh, the victim, mm-hmm. uh, where you actually see him in bed, and there uh, is like a, a towel or shorts. I can't remember what was on the floor, but there was a pair of short, a pair, pair of, of shorts. denim shorts, and a, and a pair of socks. Okay, so um, he claims that there was a disturbance between the two, mm-hmm. and that during the disturbance he he trips or something. He, he, he was trying to back away. His his version of the truth is the, the victim was laying in bed. He came to confront him about an alleged incident that happened earlier. Um, he had the gun out. And as he's backing away, he tripped over the shorts, and the gun went off and miraculously struck him in the closed eye. Right. So uh, as far as the way that Mr. Denslow was laying, we had spoke to um, the ex-girlfriend. ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. and so she basically told y'all. Well, one of the questions we asked her during her interview was, so how, how long did y'all live together? It was like a year and a half, two years. Okay, so how did he lay when he slept? And when she described his position sleeping, it was he usually laid on his left side. He usually had his knees either curled up next to him. He wore only boxers, and he always had one specific arm tucked like this and the other arm on top of that, which is exactly how we found him. Right. Blankets we, pulled up. Which leads you, I mean, he's sleeping. He was sound asleep when he was shot. Right. I mean, the fact have, that it was through a closed eye at we, we have closed eye. We have, you know, it's, yeah. So obviously that doesn't go along with 
Well, and the shorts, if you look at the photos of the shorts laying on the ground, they're, they're, they're not rolled up as if somebody tripped over them. They're, even though it's not a definitive, there's no short science that you can look right, at. Right. You could look at things and say, okay, this is consistent with having just been taken off. Right. As it's opposed to someone tripping over on drug. it or whatever. Right. right. So uh, his story's not adding up. No. Um, I mean, he's, he's, he stays with that story, right? Um, but, and, and he had said there's confrontation earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, again, nothing that would lead to the disturbance in the house. We, we find nothing, nothing of that. He's, he's, he's alleging that he actually left the house, went and got the gun and came back, came right. back to protect himself and, from and, the earlier. And I guess incident. we should be clear on that is he's not saying there was a disturbance like some verbal that led mm-hmm. to a fight, no, that no. led to a shooting. There was a disturbance. There was a break in time where he left and went and stole this gun right. and then came back to the house and entered through an unlocked back door. And, and part of it was over money. Sure. He basically, he, he had come over. He's asking uh, for money. He's asking for uh, basically the use, the, of the truck. use of the truck and these type of things. And he's saying that during this conversation that at some point uh, Mr. Denslow promised him the truck, mm-hmm. he would allow it, and then later told him no. Right. That, that he couldn't have it. He leaves home, and he's just stewing uh, about this, <laughs> and then decides to go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to, was the door unlocked? How did he get back in? So he got back in. The front door was locked, but the back patio door was left unlocked, and, and very few people. And they've been knew drinking that. beer. They've out, been drinking out beer, yeah, yeah, out, out on the back patio. Yes, yeah. And he knew that that back door was unlocked. Okay. So, so he comes in through there, he shoots him, and then so so that's about as much of a confession as we get. I mean, we he admits to doing it. Yes. Even if he's lying about how it occurs or whatever. I mean, and that's the beautiful thing about those kind of confessions: the provable lies work as good for, as as the whole truth. So, uh, the next thing that, that we certainly want to know is... Uh, where's the gun? Where's the gun, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, which he admitted also to mm-hmm. taking the gun from the neighbor, right? He was at that gathering. He was at that family gathering. So, uh, he, he was there. He took the gun from there. Uh, all intense person, we believe that's the gun. We don't have the gun. We don't have it with us. But um, it is, it's the right caliber. It's the right, right make. So, and he even described... The, a uniqueness of it. It mm-hmm. had like a laser sight that was not working. Right. And so he, you know, he describes all the details of it. Now, um, so what do you tell you did with the gun? So he told us that once this was over, he drove around for a while in the victim's truck, realized that he had some, some really big problems that he had to resolve. And one of them was getting rid of the gun. So he told us he took us to, took it to the uh, 1097 bridge. And for those that aren't familiar with the area, the 1097 bridge is a very, very long bridge that goes uh, across part of Lake Conroe, uh, linking one one part neighborhood to another, essentially. Uh, it, it's the only way you can go across 1097 and get from Willis, Texas to Montgomery, Texas. Very, very long bridge. Uh, he said he rode out to the middle of it and tossed it over. Now, and I remember something specific about this, that yes. it was total BS. Yeah, it was absolute was, load. So you know when you go across a bridge, you have the seams, the dunk, the dunk, the dunk. Which okay. is what he described and, them and as. He did, he did. And he said, <laughs> says, I went out 21 to dunk the dunks. Yes, okay. he did. <laughs> and after I got to 21, that's when I threw the gun over. And we're like, no, 
Now this that's that is that's exactly so, right. We drove him out. We drove we, out twenty one to Dunk the Dunks. We we drove out there with him, <laughs> and uh, he said, "No, this is where it is, or where." So we bring him back, and um, and that leads. Of course, I mean we have to check everything out. So we're going to look at possibly getting scheduling a dive team dive team to go out there and and all those things to try to look for this gun, and we get a phone call. Mm-hmm. This time from uh, Brian Wimbauer's biological, biological father. father. Mm-hmm. And what does he tell you? So I walked into the office early the next morning because I was trying to get everything prepped for the dive team to go out and look at this gun. And uh, his biological father called the main office line, and it just was a fluke that I happened to be the one that was there by myself, answered the phone, and he, he identified himself by name and said, I wanted to talk to you about my son's arrest for murder. No, I, I don't. I don't talk about family. He goes, well, I have something you want. I said, what is that? He goes, well, was the murder weapon X Y Z type of gun? I said, again, I don't discuss this over the phone. He goes, no, no, I have it here with me. I called right. my partner, said, let's go. Right. <laughs> so we did. We drove over to the uh, the apartment complex where he was living. Uh, he opened the back door, and there on the back seat was the make and model, correct caliber of weapon, and it matched what was stolen from the neighbor down the street. So how did he get the weapon? So he got the weapon. He told us that the night that Brian's arrest came out on the news, uh, the biological father gets a phone call from his best friend, from the father's best friend, and said, hey, your son sold me a gun a couple of days ago, and I don't want it in my possession. You need to to come get it. Right. Because the one thing that this, this best friend had asked him said, hey, does this have any heads on it, or, or is this used in any murders? Right. And he said, no, absolutely not. It's stolen, but it's not reported, so it's good to go. So this guy, you know, okay, it's not a murder weapon. We're good. As soon as he found a murder weapon, take it and get it away Everybody from Everybody has it. standards. Everybody, uh, you know, I mean, no matter what they are. <laughs> Stolen's okay, as long as it hadn't been used absolutely. in a murder yet. And, it, of so. course, that gun was test-fired later, and it was the murder weapon. So, we, yeah, it matched the bullet. Um, yes. And then also there was video around town. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had found that he had been using the truck on and off uh, for days. Like it was his uh, own. Uh, I think there was a pawn shop that he had pawned movies that, uh, in talking with family members of Denslow, believed that some of those were his movies. Well, we were able to prove that, too. I don't know if you remember that part. But after we got those back and the family members said, well, one was specifically a Star Wars part of the Star Wars series, movies, and it actually, although Winterbauer had pawned it, it had Denslow's thumbprint on the nice, movie. right? Yeah. So so he's pawning his stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at this point, we have him uh, benefiting financially from, uh, from, from the gain, homicide, yes. uh, from the truck, from mm-hmm. stuff. So uh, I know we have him um, at the bank. Yes. You know, we have pictures of him there. In the, in the uh, victim's truck. In the victim's truck. So, um, yeah, he, he had uh, used this until, and the only reason, and remember, remember that seven days, mm-hmm. the seven days of him decomposing, that's when he was using the truck. Right. Once he realized that the police were involved in looking. We were getting way too close to him being down there talking to the, the guy that found the truck. Right. So that, at that point, he, he got rid He's of it. He's done with it. So... Yeah, and it, um, yeah, that, that's, I remember him saying that, that that's once we started getting close, that, that was it. A unique thing that we found out later also is while we were working the initial scene, mm-hmm. he was driving back and forth on a golf cart watching us work the scene. Yes. 
Because again, he only lived uh, a few a few houses down, few doors down. So uh, if if you remember when we were out there at the scene, before he started doing the golf cart, they had lawn chairs lined up, and we yeah. made a comment. Look at all these people watching as they get a live version of First Forty Eight, right? Right, right? And it turns out he is one of the five people that were out there. Right. So uh, the conclusion of this. Uh, so. Um, I know that uh, it was considered for capital murder mm -hmm. uh, due to the robbery, due to the truck, due to the DVDs. Uh, so what, what was the end result? What did he uh, get charged and what was the... We, end up, we charged him with capital um, because of some circumstances surrounding the potential of that earlier disturbance we had discussed. Uh, he was offered a plea, and if I remember correctly, he took and ended up with 45 years. Yeah, I want to say... He, he was convicted of this offense, and he is currently in TDC. So, um, yeah, and that, that uh, uh, wrapped it up for him. And um, in his previous burglary thing we had not mentioned earlier, um, apparently he had tried this before. Mm -hmm. uh, he broke into a house. He had a gun. He put it to someone else's head and pulled the trigger. It Fortunately, just, didn't know how to operate the it gun. It just didn't go off. It clicked. So he went to burglary. He went to prison for burglary mm -hmm. for doing the same thing. It's just the gun didn't fire. Well, and the, the, the outcome of that one, of course, I don't know if you remember, but after, after it went click and didn't fire, the homeowner took the gun away from him and whipped his rear end with it. Right. So, <laughs> But he is put away now, uh, and everybody did a, a great job on the case. Um, just uh, just one of, of many that we, we worked. and um, just uh, It was a great, great start to that unit. Uh, yeah, great uh, turnout. So, uh, again, as we... A wrap up for a day, Paul. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. My pleasure. And uh, thank you to uh, our producers here and help from Lone Star Community Radio. If you have an idea and would like to start your own radio show, contact Dick at IRLoneStar.com. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover or you'd like to be a guest or sponsor the show, contact me at Dan at CrimeScenetoday.com. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.